As long as the Colossus stands, Rome will stand. When the Colossus falls, Rome will also fall. When Rome falls, so falls the world. Rome is one of the most fascinating eras of history, undoubtedly. As they all say, all roads lead to Rome. And in fact, of that day, that was very true. The roads of the Republic era were indeed an indication of Roman might and power. They were, in fact, a scar left on the, the very earth itself to let everyone know that now you are in Rome, or now the Romans have conquered this land. The Romans, in fact, prided themselves on the straightness of their roads. You would see no curves, no bends, no swerves in a Roman road. If that meant building massive bridges or mining through stone or mining through mountains themselves, spanning massive valleys, the roads would be straight. And that is a very fascinating and um, very interesting depiction of the Romans' might, of their power, of their prowess, and of their innovations. Obviously, the Romans were an extremely uh, innovative nation. So much of what they did inspired and even allowed other innovations to occur, whether it be technologically or governmentally. So where did all of that come from? And if you haven't figured it out by now, today we are obviously talking about the uh, Roman Republic. I have done an episode on the Roman Empire, or not the Empire, I'm sorry, um, the origins of Rome and the seven kings of Rome. Um, so go ahead and check that episode out if you're interested in the Romans. And before we get any further, um, I tried to do a live stream this morning, and in fact, I think it went through successfully, but I have not been able to open or watch it or download it, so I'm actually recording this episode again, um, so it might occur a little bit differently on YouTube as it is on the uh, audio platforms. Uh, I'm not sure what is going wrong with it. Um, I'm trying to work on doing these episodes live, the streaming versions, and it's not working out too well, so I'll have to figure something out at some point, but I do apologize about the inconvenience if you were trying to watch the live stream and it wasn't working, or if it was really echoey, when I the small portion of it that I was able to listen to was very echoey, so I'm, I'm not really sure why that was happening. Um, regardless, doing the episode again, and uh, hopefully I'll hit on all of the main points, who knows, maybe this one will turn out a little bit better than the last one. Um, but anyways, if you have enjoyed these episodes that I do, the podcast, please consider leaving ratings and reviews. Follow me on YouTube, on Rumble, on um, follow on Locals if you want bonus content and early access and all of that jazz. Um, so Locals will get you lots of bonus content and early access and the ability to answer or ask, I should say, mailbag questions or just a great community of like-minded people who are fascinated with learning and improving and uh, talking about philosophy or mathematics or science, whatever it is. So follow there, leave ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Extremely helpful and simply just share the show. And with that said, let's get into the episode today. The tale uh, often told of the birth of the Roman Republic is that of Lucretia, 
the wife of the great Roman Brutus, um, who is different than the Brutus of the Julius Caesar story. Um, that's not the same Brutus, that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. This is a Brutus who was relatively friends with the Tarquins, and King Tarquinius Subertus, or Tarquinius the Proud, and his son Sextus Tarquinius. Both of them were extremely brutal men. Now, as it happened on one fine evening, these men, along with some others, were sitting at a campsite um, miles and miles away from the city of Rome, and they were speaking of their wives and who had the best, most virtuous, the greatest of the wives. Well, of course, as men do, each one said that, no, it is my wife that is the most virtuous and the best and the greatest of the wives, and they talked a lot of bullcrap, and they made uh, great proclamations, but then one of them said, gentlemen, the only way in which we can truly figure out whose wife is the best, is to go back right now in the dead of night to our houses and find out what our wives are doing. And so they went, and each one burst in their door and found that their wives were gossiping or just dallying about or doing nothing of particular womanly virtue, except for Brutus's wife. Brutus's wife was burning the midnight oil, literally, with a small candle, and she was knitting and crocheting and creating a nice pair of socks for her children, or whatever it is, she was weaving a tapestry, she was doing something productive. And so they found that Brutus's wife is, was the most virtuous. But this act of womanly virtue inspired in Sextus Tarquinius a, a lust, and he went in later and raped Lucretia. And when Brutus came back home from, this was days or weeks or whatever later, but eventually she was raped by Sextus Tarquinius. And when Brutus returned, she informed him immediately of what had happened and without hesitation plunged a knife into her chest, killing herself. Because this is what you should do, even though you were attacked, assaulted, by this man, as a woman, your virtue and your honor is worth more than life itself, which is something that is repeated in both Greek and Roman mythology, uh, honor above all else. And so, vowing the destruction of the Tarquins, who were essentially foreign rulers from Etrusca, um, Brutus declared a revolution and got many people who also equally loathed and despised the Tarquins because they were brutal, brutal, brutal men. And so they revolted and cast out the Etruscan emperors because, as I said in the last episode, uh, the Roman culture really spawned out of Etrusca. And when the seven hills of Rome became a city of Rome, uh, the Etruscans were the kings and the emperors. And um, there was seven of them, and eventually... It ended in the Tarquin line, and then Brutus is elected as the first of the consuls. And from there, in 509 BC, the Roman Republic is born. And we have this emancipation from the Romans and the Etruscans, and you can see right away how similar the story is to um, the revolt of our own American nation, of this foreign emperor who is being unjust, uh, unjust in different ways. These people were simply brutal and, and were raping innocent women, but um, our king, King George, was raping our wallets, one could say, um, in, at least in the 1700s, that is. But regardless, 
we have this foreign occupation, this foreign rule of a nation that sees itself as a great nation or potentially great nation, and they wanted to liberate themselves from this oppressive rule. And when they did that, they set up various ways in which to prevent um, the amalgamation of power into one hand, and they were pretty gun-shy about emperors and stuff like that. Until later on, obviously, when they turned back into an empire and when they had the dictatorship possibility. But regardless, from here we have the Emancipation and the Reyes Republica was born, the Roman Republic. And it, it's still a long way from the Republic it would become. And in fact, in the beginning, it did not even have a constitution. At this point, instead, it had 12 tables. Um, and they were essentially Hammurabi-like codes for general living and they spelt out some pretty wackadoo different things. But eventually, this would bleed into a Roman constitution, which tentatively began the Republic of Rome. And it's a period that would last from 509 BC all the way to 27 BC. But what's interesting is the Roman Republic was never actually, or the, uh, the Roman constitution was never actually written. Instead, it was just a series and value, a series of values that was enforced simply by the culture. And we can observe how it spawns and changes and grow throughout the time through the historians such as Libby and um, through Virgil with his Aeneid and, and all of these things. And, and uh, the quote that I read at the beginning was by a historian uh, named Bede. And he lived from 672 BC to, or I'm sorry, AD to 735 AD. And... But we can see the change of the Constitution as it ebbs and flows and different beliefs were swarming in, as it changes minutely. But not as much as one would expect to have a non-written Constitution. And many historians believe, in fact, that um, the existence of this Constitution is what enabled Rome to last for so long. And um, obviously the Roman Republic was arguably one of the largest and most important parts of the ancient world. It was obviously hugely inspirational to our American governmental system. And so here is a passage from Chicago Unbound uh, in a review of the Roman Constitution, uh, and this comes actually from the Chicago School of Law. This person did an analysis kind of on the Roman Constitution, and here's what he says. The most notable feature of the Roman system from a modern perspective was the elaborate set of precautions against the accumulation of executive power into a single person. The goal was to prevent the recurrence of monarchy, but the risk of checks and balances is that they paralyze governance. I argue that gridlock did not occur during the Republic's first four centuries because the population was relatively small and homogenous, so political agents could bargain around the institutional checks and balances when necessary for the sake of public security, but as conquered foreign populations streamed into the city, the population became large and heterogeneous. Most of the fabulous wealth resulting from conquest enriched the elites, not ordinary people, resulting in divergence of interests between the upper and lower classes. Governance became subject to gridlock, setting the stage for extra-constitutional behavior in the last century, and eventually dictatorship. That's an extremely interesting point when he talks about uh, the homogeneity of the population, and we'll get into that later on in the episode, but that's very, very 
important concept for both Rome and where we in America is are, are right now because the resemblance between America and the resemblance between Rome is is stark. So let's get into this class context right now or the conversation. The plebeians and the patricians are the two respective classes of the Republic. There's pretty much always two, sometimes three, maybe four categories of people. And broadly, the plebeians and the patricians are the two classes of the Roman Empire and the Republic. The plebeians are the pleasant or peasant class, and they are afforded very little rights. I mean, they, ha- they are Roman citizens, but they're not seen in the same way. These are farmers. These are blacksmiths. These are uh, your lower class people, people who are not wealthy. They don't own horses. They're not, they're not, um, yeah, they're just the lower class. And then the patricians are the richer, wealthier landowning class. Um, they are the voters and the runners of government individuals who would join the Senate and the majority of the assemblies. Now, the plebeians can vote as well, but they cannot really participate in governance at the beginning. But then they're given rights and they're given the ability to join the assemblies and eventually the Senate and eventually the consuls. And, and, and so it goes on. And those are the, the three parts of the constitutional government. But to give you a perspective... The plebeians and the patricians were not even allowed to intermarry until 435, or I'm sorry, 445 BC. Um, that's they were social outcasts in a lot of ways, and and as a result of that behavior and the way that they treated the plebeians, the plebeians were very resentful, and there was always a tensity between the two classes. And it would lead to revolts in some cases, into civil wars, into coup d'etats, into all of these things until they're gained more and more um, representation in the government. And obviously this is not a racial representation because they're white, but it's the same reason that we were upset with our lords in Britain. We weren't represented in their parliament. We had no people who uh, had our interests in mind representing us in the British parliament. They weren't um, standing in the gap for us, one might say. They weren't trying to get us a better living in the British Parliament. And when we're looking at the 1700s in, the, um, in America. But so the breakdown of the Roman constitutional government is, is as follows. There's three main parts. There's the consuls, the senate, and the assemblies. And the consuls can um, essentially be viewed as people like our president. In, in in a certain way, because they didn't necessarily legislate law, and but they had a lot more power than a president, so they can kind of be seen as kings as well. But here's the big difference. There's always two consuls at a time, and that's so that they could veto each other, and they could kind of check each other's ideas, but they could then interact with the populace, and they could execute the legislative decisions that the Senate was to make. And at the beginning, the Republic, at the beginning of the Republic, both consuls would come from the patrician or the wealthy landowning class. But eventually, plebeians were, in fact, encouraged to run. And then eventually, it would be that one plebeian and one patrician would be consul at the same time. After they served their one-year term, they would then be appointed to the Senate for life. And after only 10 years, could they run again? Or 10 years only, they could run again, I should say. But... Yeah, that's one of the interesting things. They served for one year. They, they had one-year terms. In fact, many of the elected positions, you only served for one term. 
and then you would try to move up the ladder. But when you got to the consul, there's no higher ladder to go in, so then you're just appointed to the Senate. And you could only serve for one year, and then if you waited 10 more years, you could theoretically run for consulship again, and you would really just... Um, the, the Senate picked the consuls, so you would campaign in the Senate and for the Senate, and then you would be elected to consulship if you won. Now the Senate. Senatus Papilusque Romanus. Uh, the Senate and the people of Rome. Besides Caesar, the Senate may be the best known part of the Roman Empire. When one says the word Rome, you typically think of only a couple of things, and one of them is the old guys wearing togas. The Senate of Rome actually predated the Republic of Rome. It actually existed as far back as the uh, regent period of Rome, where the Seven Kings, where it was simply a hundred senexes, and which is where the term Senate comes from, senex, and it literally means old men, and that's what it was. It was really uh, a group of old, respected men, and all they did was pretty much just advise. They advised the kings. They were the king's royal advisors, in other words. Um, but then, as the Republic took hold of the Senate, they gained tremendous amounts of power. They also expanded astronomically in size. By the time that the Republic fell in 27 BC, um, there was nearly a thousand members of the Senate, which effectively made it useless, which could have been the intent of the soon-to-be dictator, uh, Caesar Augustus or Julius Caesar. Regardless, for the duration of the Republic, the Senate was the powerful deliberative body. They appointed the consuls. Moreover, they controlled the military and the administration of Rome, its treasury, its foreign policy, in fact, everything, essentially. Being in the Senate was absolutely everything. That's what you wanted to do. You, if you were anybody and anybody in Rome, you were a member of the Senate. Now, one of the requirements to join the Senate would be to hold an office in one of the major magistrates, the down-and-dirty jobs of running Rome. And here, I'm going to give a little shout-out to our sponsors at Wondrium. I'm going to read an excerpt from Wondrium. And Wondrium is a, a simply just phenomenal platform um, accumulating hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of different lectures and classes and documentaries from some of the most respected professors or documentarians. If you want to learn about uh, history of Rome, if you want to learn about Algebra 101, if you want to learn about space, if you want to learn about the quantum theories, if you want to learn about behavioral economics, if you want to learn about the pagan religions, if you like literally anything, the history of Christianity, um, writing scripts, writing books, writing short stories, anything that you can think of, you can do it on One Dream. You can learn about it and you can get expert tutelage by expert professors, world class professors. And so yeah, it's it's a great platform. I use it all the time. In fact, I use it a lot for helping study in some of my classes at college. I watch these videos, these lecture series, and it helps me get a better understanding of it. So if you would like to learn more about Wondrium, if you want to check out uh, the free trial, go ahead and use the link that I have in the description. Help me help you. So use that and then um, sign up for Wondrium. It's phenomenal. Now, the assemblies were the other very important deliberative body of the Reis Republica. This is um, one of the more democratic of the bodies. You're elected to this position by the people. You would also make laws, and you would do a lot of the 
kind of like you can think of this as kind of like the local government or maybe the different committees inside of the House of Representatives is kind of how I would think about it. I think that's a good way of looking at um, this portion of the Roman government because it is it is kind of confusing because there's different words for it. Um, but essentially, the assemblies um, are the smaller, more local offices, but still important and still very democratic. The lowest magistracy was the quaestorship, and this is from Wondrium. Under the fully developed system, quaestors were, uh, were supposed to be 30 years old and were in charge of various financial affairs. Originally, they would have only two quaestors, elected each year. Over time, however, there was a need for more and more officials, and the numbers grew to 20. Different quaestors had varying specific duties, with some, for example, in charge of monitoring taxation, others overseeing financial matters in the province and others controlling government finances. The next magistracy was the Edelship. Edels had to be 36 years old, and four were elected each year. The Edels were responsible for a variety of urban affairs, including the maintenance and repair of urban infrastructure, monitoring markets to ensure fair trade, and enforce uniform standards of weights and measurements for st and staging public festivals which is interesting. Above the Adults were the Praetors, who had to be 39 years old, and as with the Quaestors, the number of Praetors gradually increased over time, from one to as many as eight. Praetors mainly served as judicial functions, overseeing law courts and running the judiciary system, which is similar, in fact, to um, our own Supreme Court, essentially, is what the Praetors, I would compare them to, and my understanding of how it works. The praetors are kind of considered our like Supreme Court justices. And now, ideally, if you were a uh, political-minded person, you would try to hit each of those major magistries at the minimum age requirements, 30 years old, 36 years old, and 39 years old. And there are other offices, but these are some of the biggest magistries. And then you have other assemblies, and such as the Tribune to the Plebs. And we still actually have the term plebs, I guess. That's still an insult that some people use if they call you a pleb or a plebe. It's saying you're a, a poor, broke guy. Um, but the tribune to the plebs, he was... This was one of the only offices that did not qualify you to get into the Senate. Because one of the requirements for the Senate, again, is to hold some position of office. One of the assemblies, one of the magistries. And so... But that one didn't actually get you that position. And essentially, you would just petition the court on behalf of the plebeian class. Um, but regardless, um, those are some of the offices. And so the assembly, as I said, is essentially could be considered or, or thought of um, like the different committees inside of the House of Representatives. Now, another big aspect of... Roman civilization, especially in the later periods of the Republic, is the concept of patronage, and this was this was huge um, because, as I said, tensions were always extremely tensile, and you could you know, I I could imagine the bitterness between the plebeian and the patrician class was almost visceral and tangible, and so one of the ways that the Romans kind of mitigated that tension is through the act of patronage. And patronage is essentially this. If I'm running for office 
and I have a friend who's of the plebeian class, and he can't afford his house payment. Well, I will pay for your house, and in return, you will vote for me when it comes time. But more than that, you will convince other people to vote for me as well. And obviously, that's dual-sided. I'm helping my friend, but my friend's helping me. Or it doesn't necessarily have to be my friend. You just go and you're the become the patron of this of a bunch of different people because you are giving them money or if they need food you're giving them food if they need maintenance on their farm you're maintaining their farm whatever it might be and in return they're voting for you and they're getting other people to vote for you as well there's another concept called a bond servant or a bond slave and this is actually what peter exalts us and i think paul does too is to be like a bond servant for christ and that's actually the same thing. If you were freed as a slave, oftentimes you could find no other employment but to continue to work for your master. And what your master would pay you to do is essentially to be his vote accumulator. You would go out and you would just testify of the worthiness of your master. And of course, that's not always in good faith on the part of the now freed slave or servant. But that's what they would get paid to do. You would be a bond servant, and you would go and you would tell everybody to go vote for this guy. And you would exonerate him in the city, and you would tell everybody that he's worthy. And that's what we're supposed to emulate in Christ. We're supposed to be, obviously, in good faith, because we're not, and obviously we're not getting paid for it, but we are to go out and be as a bond servant to Christ, someone who testifies of his goodness in the earth. And that's, what, that's one of the reasons why... Um, Paul and Peter told us to be like that, and they would very much know about it because it was such a huge thing in the Roman era. Patrons were massive. They were massively popular, and they were very important to the maintaining of tension, or the mitigating of tension, I should say, between the two classes of people because, as I said, it's a very tense time. Um, in fact, it would continually be tense between these two classes. It always is, and this is one of the things that they did to kind of maintain good faith with these plebeian classes is I'll, I'll help you get by if you help me win office, which is kind of a raw deal because they didn't help them until, I mean, eventually uh, they would gain more rights and they'd gain more political power and they would eventually be required to have a plebeian in the consulship. And usually that would be, uh, the plebeian would be somebody who worked up military and they'd be a general and so on and so forth. But regardless, that was a very interesting part of the Roman Republic. Now, the other very interesting part of what Rome did that was um, very new, and once again back to the innovation, is they did not immediately or always continually enslave the people whom they conquered. When you had an, in, when you conquered a race of people, typically you enslaved them, at least in this ancient world. But the Romans were one of the first people that did not do that. And the reasons for it is multifaceted. There's a lot of different reasons why they wouldn't do it. But one of the biggest ones is obviously funneling people into their military. Now what they would do is they would conquer a land. And instead of just enslaving them, they would give them different levels of citizenship. You are one quarter citizen, one third citizen, one half citizen, full citizen sometimes or you are an ally of Rome. And so they'd give them these different delineations, obviously with the express intent and of reaping benefits from them, but implying to them that if you get in our good graces, if you maintain a great supply trade with us, if you 
keep giving your young men into our military, then you will work your way up. So you'd go from one quarter to one half citizen or one half to a full citizen or an ally to a uh, one fourth citizen of the Roman Republic and therefore giving you extra rights, rights to a trial, which is a huge deal back then in a land in a time in which most lands will just have Hammurabi like codes, codes high for an eye, ear for an ear, death for death, robbery for robbery sort of thing. Having a trial was tremendous. And in most cases, Rome would have a trial. But if you were a Roman citizen, like a, a province of Rome, if you were not a citizen of Rome or a quarter citizen of Rome, you would be tried locally. But if you were a Roman citizen, you were tried in Rome. And we can see this once again in the Bible in the story of Paul when he's shipwrecked. And before that, he's Paul of Tarsus. And so he's a Roman citizen. And therefore, he had the right to a trial in Rome, and we see in the story of Acts when he actually gets taken to Rome, and on the way there or back, he gets shipwrecked. But so that was a very historically prevalent thing. Everybody wanted to be a Roman citizen. This goes again back to the idea of the roads, and the way that you could tell that someone was a citizen is because they had the signal, uh, the signal, the toga. A toga was something that only Roman citizens could wear. Why they wanted to wear those, couldn't tell you. Probably was probably hot, so they were nice and cool and refreshing. But then different sash colors and thicknesses of whether it's a thick purple or a thin purple would give you different delineations between plebeian and patrician and senate member versus consul. All of these different colors and stuff like that would delineate different statuses within your citizenry level of Rome. But regardless, a Roman citizen was super, super important. The other reason that the Romans would give these uh, different levels of citizenship is because they got so many, so many soldiers for the Roman army, which was the real true reason that Rome was victorious. If it comes to skill or quantity, oftentimes quantity of soldiers is still better, at least when it comes to this infantry level war. Because they would just throw assault after assault after wave after wave of soldiers, and they would eventually win. And one of the reasons they could do that is, is they, they had a lot of good tactics, don't get me wrong. But one of the big reasons is just their just ability to just throw onslaught after onslaught of soldiers into war. The, the, I mean, there's, there's time. So there's one story. I forget the general's names, unfortunately, but... They're long Roman and, and ancient names. But they were fighting against Rome, and this guy kept winning these victories. Okay, He kept winning over and over and over again. But he kept saying that if I, if I win another battle, it will ruin me because the Romans just kept pushing and kept pushing because there's just so many of them that even though they were losing, they were literally defeating this military by just costing them so many casualties and such destruction and the ruin of their economy. So Rome in one of their one of their wars literally lost every single battle but won the war because of just the onslaught of Roman soldiers just literally broke their banks and they could not they could no longer afford the and had no longer the means to fight the battle anymore and so they lost and that that is why Rome was victorious and that's why Rome had this ability to just destroy every other nation. And so the Romans 
when they would give people these citizenships, Romans were required to do two things, to vote and to serve in the military. So that's one of the reasons why they would continue to bring on and add citizenship levels to these people. It was also, this mil- their military was a Romanization machine. And so as these individuals joined the Roman military, well, they were taught Latin, and they were taught about the Roman gods, the Roman way of government. And when they got out of the military, if they survived their time in the military, that is, they would be motivated to live the Roman life. And that was one of the very important things. And this is where I'll get into what I was talking about earlier that I said I would get to, the desire to be like the Romans, the, the uh, desire to be Roman, the, the value of having a trial, the value of being a citizen, and the desire, uh, the, the mark of the Roman roads, the all roads lead to Rome, the, the, the pure, sheer presence of Rome, and that was so crucial because as that began to fade away, that's when the decline of Rome started. When eventually, and I'll get into this in a second as well, as the Rome expanded and got bigger, part of the destruction of Rome was its religion and its inclusivity. Because the Romans, obviously, I'll just get right into the religious talk about the Romans, obviously they believed in literally a limitless amount of gods. They had no, they had their pantheon, they had their Olympiads, uh, Jupiter, Venus, um, uh, Vulcan, Mars, uh, Neptune, all of, all of their, their Roman pantheon. But then they also would add all of these other minor gods. They had something that was called a genius loci. And so a, a local spirit, and that's where we get the word genius from, a spirit. It's a divine genius. It's a divine spirit. So when we're, that's where, I mean, the muses were divine spirits that uh, gave you musical insight and, and uh, literary insight and all of these things. That's what the muses did there, the storyteller gods. But then they had house gods, and they had city gods, and they had street gods, or they had river gods and river spirits, and... And of course, they, like I said, they had their Olympiads, but they would add any religion that they wanted to. And sometimes they would conquer a new land and find that, oh, no, these gods are just different iterations of our same gods already. But other times they'd be new gods and they needed to add them to the empire. And that caused a lot of turmoil and it caused a lot of problems because eventually people um, adding all of these different cultures caused a a resentment, and the, eventually the religions would conflict with each other. Uh, an interesting fact that the Romans would do to show their um, desire to uh, serve any god that existed and, and uh, give them a chance, when they would invade a new city, a lot of times they would perform a ritual. Uh, before they formally declared war and started the battle, they would invite the gods of the city or the gods of that nation to come and join their pantheon and be on their side, and then they would declare war and they would just obliterate the people. But eventually, as the empire as the empire grew larger, like stepping away from the republic for a second, as the empire grew larger, people no longer saw themselves as just Romans. They were um, East Romans, West Romans, whatever it might be, but they felt like they served different gods. 
and therefore they didn't necessarily want to be just Roman. They wanted to be a great way of putting it is like in America. Well, I'm not just American. I'm African American or Asian American or I'm German American. I'm Polish American. It's uh, taking away from I'm just American. That same sort of thing began to happen when it came to the Romans. It is one of the things that really ended up as it got too big, it just got too big to sustain. And people lost the the value of what it meant to be a traditional Roman. They stopped caring about the fact that all roads lead to Rome, that the fact that they wanted to be a an amalgamation of the Romans and they began to turn away from what it originally meant to be of Rome when it came to honoring the their great heroes such as Lucretia, the person who instigated the entire uh, Roman Republic, one of the greatest points of Rome's history. Uh, they didn't value this honor and this desire to be honored. And that's one of the things that made Marcus Aurelius such a great Roman emperor because he kind of took it back to that, guys, let's be men, let's be real Romans, let's do this. And and they, as they lost that, when they when they stopped respecting that, when they wanted to care more about the integration of all of the other gods, then they they kind of lost what it meant to be Romans. And so I think we'll end it there today. I did there was a question that I wanted to answer, and it's an important question because the timeline of Rome's history can be very difficult to interpret. So the question is, is the Roman Republic the same as the Roman Empire? Did it start after, during, or before the conquest of Alexander the Great? Well, the Roman Republic and Empire are two different periods of time. There's the Regent period, the Republic period, and the Empire period. And the Empire period begins tentatively 27 BC with the taking over of power of Caesar Augustus, the nephew of Julius Caesar. And then did it start before, during, or after the conquest of Alexander the Great? Well, Alexander the Great took power in like 320 or 330, maybe 340 BC. And so the Roman Republic was already it was already kicked off and had been around for 200 years. But that was in Italy, which is to the uh, west, or I'm sorry, to the east of the Grecan Isles and, and the mainland of Greece and Macedonia is north of Greece and Athens. Um, and so really Alexander the Great conquered towards uh, towards the east, and so he conquered into Asia and into uh, Syria and into those lands. And then when his uh, when his kingdom collapsed, that's a, approximately when Rome really got more um, interested in conquering new lands and new territories. And so his his empire collapsed years after he died. Obviously, he had his four generals, which and obvi- and honestly, um, this was prophesied by Daniel, which is very interesting and very cool. When he gives when he gives his prophecy, he prophesies the destruction of the empire of Alexander the Great and then the conquest of the Romans. And one of the reasons the Romans were able to really conquer so well is because of the disarray caused by the collapse of Alexander the Great's empire. So they kind of operated in tandem for a little bit, and then um, Alexander died and his kingdom collapsed. The empire kind of swept through and kind of picked up the pieces and added tremendously to Alexander the Great's empire. But so yeah, there is a difference. 
um, between the Republic and the Roman Empire. And it's confusing because after that is the Holy Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire, so it's kind of hard. And they still thought of themselves as of the Roman tradition. So it can be difficult, it can be hard. Um, but yeah, so it goes the regent, regency period of the Roman Empire, the Republic period, the, Ro- the Res Republica, and then the Roman Empire where there is a Caesar who is kind of viewed as a god figure and he's a great dictator and all of that. And one of the things I actually wanted to mention um, is before we end, one of the reasons that um, the Republic was such an interesting period is because they did have this ability to just add a dictator if they wanted it. Um, And this is one of the things that made America such a great thing is, look, uh, back to what I was saying a a minute ago about like valuing Lucretia and being a Roman, one of the things that made America great is the characters whom they honored. And one of them was the dictator Cincinnatus, who was a... I believe he was a plebeian, and he was a Roman general, and he retired. And then the consuls could, or in the Senate, could add a dictator if there was an emergency period. They could add a dictator, and then um, he would deal with whatever happened, and then he would retire. And that is what Cincinnati actually did, and he's one of the very few that actually did that after he after he solved and like won this war in like a matter of a couple of days or a week or so, he retired and then like didn't even go into politics, just retired back to his farm. And that's somebody that George Washington and the founders honored. And that's why there he set a precedent for a two term period. Obviously it didn't get instated and codified into law until after King Roosevelt died and uh, with his four terms. Um, but that was one of the interesting things about the Roman Republic period is they had that ability, and um, obviously it led to something that was problematic with Julius Caesar, but one of the things that made, because the Romans also honored him as one of their greatest characters, and that's one of the things that um, made America great is they also honored those figures, and when we forget the figures whom we're supposed to honor, we lose our culture, just as the Romans did and just as America is doing now. So... I think it's very important that we look back on this Roman history because it, in so many ways, it is a type and shadow and an inspiration for America, and we can learn a lot about America by looking at Rome because our founding fathers honored those traditional Roman characters and modeled our government after them, so we should be mindful of that. So with that, I'll leave you guys. I'll see you next week. In the meantime, learn something new, learn something real, and I'll be back with some more. Food for thought.